I was getting gas at the gas station a couple days ago uh, in, in Rockwall, Costco, and a young kid kind of manning the pumps there. I'm not sure what Costco thinks is going to happen at the pumps, but they have that guy that's out there, you know, in case there's a brawl or something, because um, it's so much cheaper there. And he asked me, he saw a sticker on the back of our van for Cross, Cross Point Fellowship, and he asked us what denomination we were. And I said, Baptist. And he said, um, he said, why, what's it, what's with it with all the denominations and all this division? And it's really sort of, uh, obviously, a kind of a pet issue for him. And I asked him if he had any brothers or sisters. And uh, he said he did. He had some siblings. And I said, are you guys uh, different? He said, yeah. I said, well, are you divided? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, can't the church be that way too? Can we have different denominations where people meet in different places and maybe focus on things a little bit differently, but yet we're still brothers and sisters and we can not be divided? It's not necessarily a division issue. And he said, I never thought of it like that. So um, I share that little story with you today as we lift up another church in our community that's Methodist, different denomination, but um, in the eyes of a lost world, we're not that different. You know, as you look at it from here to there, you go, oh, we're so different from the Methodists or whoever, Presbyterians. Or, but from the eyes of lostness, they see a people that loves Jesus and a people that is preaching Jesus and walking in faith. And um, so we have a whole lot more in common in, in Christ than we may have different. So we should lift up our brothers and sisters in our community. So we're going to lift up this other church as we begin time in, in worship, our time in sermon this morning. Lord, this morning, I want to lift up another church in our community, Kavanaugh United Methodist Church. I want to pray for Stephen Cotton. I want to pray, first of all, for Stephen's worship and just knowing that uh, it would be impossible for him to bring the word week by week or for him to pastor or, or counsel apart from worship. So, Lord, as a church this morning, we want to pray for Stephen as the pastor of this church. I want to pray for his time in the Word. I want to pray for us. Scott prayed a moment ago, nothing happens apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is at work in and on him. And Lord, I pray that as a result of that, that his family is seeing the fruit of that first. Lord, secondly, I pray that it is, it is saturating his counsel. I pray that it is fueling his preaching. I pray as a result of that that Kavanaugh United Methodist Church will be a salty, bright, aromatic people for your namesake. Lord, we pray that whatever way we may come alongside this church, whether it's just an unofficial encouragement, support, cheering for your namesake there, or whether some official way, we pray that we would be faithful to walk in that. We're thankful for the privilege of lifting up some brothers and sisters in mor this morning in faith. Um, just pray that you'll be glorified in the time that they are likely spending together this morning in your word. Lord, we pray that you will guide us in these next few minutes, that we'll bring glory to you in the way that we spend our time together today. That simple beauty will not be lost in um, the delivery somehow. I pray that you will work in spite of me, that you will speak in spite of me, and that whatever issues that may not be clear, that the Holy Spirit will bring into uh, perfect focus. 
And Lord, too, I pray that what we hear today will be more than just something that's heard, but something that's walked in and lived, and something that invades den and Tuesday and workspace and marriage, family, friendships, time. I pray that we'll be hearers and doers. Turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3 specifically. I'm going to read our passage. Really the first six verses of chapter 3 is where we are sort of camped out. Uh, Last week, this week, and the next few Sundays that we spend together uh, will be walking through these first six verses. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful, or also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Last week, we just considered the first part of verse 1 and found that God's people, or the brothers referred to here, our sisters is implied, are those who share in a heavenly calling, those who are walking walking in and pursuing holiness, do what those sorts of people do. They consider Jesus. We considered the context, too, of the Hebrews church. They're likely in Rome. We don't know that for sure, but there's some indications that they're in the middle of the Roman Empire, that it's a little Hellenistic Jewish church, the language that's used there, the references of the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, and the, the way those sort of images are used as if they were already known suggests that this is a Jewish church, and it looks like this little Jewish church, likely in Rome, has gone into hunker-down mode. It looks like because of the ch- challenges that they're facing in the Roman Empire, the persecution that they're facing, the suffering that they're facing, which is profound, that they've gone underground, so to speak, that they've locked their door, that they're playing it safe, and even worse than that, they're considering going back to their old faith, basic garden variety Judaism. We found that last week the medicine for that problem was to consider Jesus. And we left it just at that last week. And what we're doing this morning and in the next few weeks is we're going to consider specifically what about Jesus? What did this Hebrew preacher want his church to consider? And what can we consider now 2,000 years later that could impact our context? So today we're going to consider Jesus as the rest of verse 1 says right there, Apostle and high priest of our confession. 
Let me tell you first what a confession is. I'm not going to spend really any time on this. I think it's interesting, though. Their confession was a binding expression of obligation and commitment, the response of faith to the action of God. There's some indication that this confession was associated with their baptism. You know, it's funny, we've used the imagery of baptism before to be almost like the wedding ceremony where you become betrothed, not betrothed, you become wed to our divine husband. And seeing this was sort of confirmation that, oh, this rich confession, this binding expression of obligation and commitment likely took place in the early church at their baptism. In some ways, it's like a man and a woman looking each other in the eyes and saying, I do. This confession is the appeal, is the appeal but the subject of the confession is where I want us to spend the time together today. The subject of the confession is the apostle and high priest that is Jesus Christ. I don't know how I remembered this, but as I was studying this this week, it was a word that I learned in seminary, hapax legomenon. It's a Greek word that means occurring only once, and it's a word that's used when a word only appears once in our Bible or once in a book. And this phrase, apostle and high priest, Hapax legomenon usually applies to a word, but we're going to use it in regards to a, a, a phrase because it's the only place in our Bible where Jesus is referred to as apostle and high priest. So the cool thing about this Sunday morning is we could spend the rest of our lives and our lives up to this point having studied the Bible, preached through the Bible verse by verse, and this would be the only Sunday that we would ever study apostle and high priest together. That's pretty cool. It's a special day for us to consider Jesus as apostle and high priest. What we're going to do is we're going to consider them separately, and then we're going to consider them together. First apostle, and then high priest, and then we'll consider them together. Apostle means sent one. Apostle is used a few times in the Gospels. Occasions where in past tense, you know, the author of the gospel is referring to the, then the disciples, but later the apostles. But in the writing of it, they're, by that point, they're apostles. It's used a few times in the gospels. It's used all over the place in the book of Acts. And it's used frequently in the epistles. You can kind of think through that for a little bit and think about, oh, wait a second. In the Gospels, the disciples were followers of Christ. In Acts, the disciples are sent by Christ. So you can understand why in the book of Acts, apostle is used frequently. Apostles means sent one, but one way to look at it that makes it helpful for me is orientation. An apostle represented God to man. An apostle represented God to man. We have some versions of apostles in our Bible, Old Testament versions. They weren't called apostles. They were called angels being one. You think about the times where angels showed up and they represented God with some sort of message. New Testament as well. Mary, you're going to have a baby. Angel shows up as a representative of God and shares God's message. Think about the Old Testament is saturated with prophets. That's the Old Testament version of these. 
representatives of God that say judgment is coming, for example. Those two examples, angels and prophets, are dealt with in the first two chapters of Hebrews. Remember how the book of Hebrews starts. First of all, it says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the Old Testament representatives of God. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We've had an upgrade in Jesus. He's established that already in regards to prophets. And later on in chapter 2, he establishes it with angels. Listen to chapter 2, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, i.e., an upgraded message from an upgraded messenger? The first two chapters distinguish prophets and Jesus, angels and Jesus, and establish that Jesus is a significant Upgrade. He is the finest, the finer representative or sent one. I have to confess to you, turn to John chapter 3. I have to confess to you, as I think of Jesus, I don't often think sent. I wonder sometimes if the reason I don't think of Jesus as sent is because my orientation is more about he comes to me. My perspective on Jesus' work has more to do with how it's benefited me rather than the real big picture that God the Father sent the Son. We'll come back to that and consider that for a little bit as we go. But I want to show you this isn't some, although this is a Hapax legomenon phrase, the concept of Jesus as sent one is not an underdeveloped concept. It is for me. And that's having spent almost nine years preaching through the book of John. I want to show you something in the book of John. It's pretty cool. John chapter 3, verse 34. I'm going to read a passage from John chapter 3, John chapter 4, John chapter 5, John chapter 6, John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 9, John chapter 10, John chapter 11, John chapter 12. And I'm going to stop right there because that's pretty exhaustive, although I wouldn't have to. Every single chapter shows a picture of what I'm about to show you. Listen to this. John chapter 3, verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will, will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to, to do the will of him who sent me. John chapter 7, verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who 
sent me. John chapter 8, verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. John chapter 9, this is an interesting one. John chapter 9, verse 4. You may be familiar with this chapter as the chapter where Jesus heals a man born blind. Verse 4, they've just been asked, they've just asked Jesus, well, who sinned, this dude or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus said, it's not that his parents sinned or that he sinned, but that my glory or God's might will be displayed in him. In verse 4, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. He goes on to heal this man, and the way he heals him is he puts some stuff on his eyes, and then he sends him off to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. I was sent to put the Father's glory on display, and I'm going to heal you, and I want you to go bathe in scent. There's a hint to where this is going later on in the morning. Verse, or chapter 10, verse 36. I'll start in verse 35 just for the sake of context. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Chapter 11, verse 42 I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. This is in the context where he calls Lazarus from death to life. And he prays out loud, not for his own benefit, but that they may know that he was sent by the Father. Chapter 12, verse 44 and Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Having preached through the book of John and spent as much time as we spent in John, I cannot believe as I examine myself that it could be so underdeveloped in me to not see Jesus as the sent one. I don't know if it's in every chapter, but it wouldn't surprise me. I could have kept going. And you may have felt like, man, that's a little bit exhaustive. Why the effort? Because we spent eight years there. And if I didn't see it, I'll be surprised if you're thinking of Jesus as the sent one. This is a very important concept to the early church. It comes out of Jesus' mouth so many times that he's been sent. I found 157 verses in the Gospels dealing with some form of sent, send, sending, or sins. Now, later on in the morning, I'm going to have some, what I believe to be very appropriate application for that, for us. But I want to confess something to you. I wonder if I have even scratched the surface personally of what this might mean for me or what it might mean for us if we really begin to think of Jesus as the sent one like I said, I wonder sometimes if I'm too busy thinking about he's the one that came to me than to really think about the fact that he was sent by the Father. I'm going to ask you to wonder about that with me. 
to consider that with me in the coming weeks and months. What it might mean for you, what it might mean for your family if you consider him as a sent one. We're going to move on to the high priest, but I want to share this before we move on. His sentness, it's a new word I'm making up, combines with who he is so that we find that he represents the character of the invisible God in an unapproach- or in unapproachable light. John 1.18 says this about Jesus. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He is the perfect representative of God to man. He is the perfect apostle. Secondly, high priest. If the apostle represents God to man, the high priest does the opposite. The high priest represents man to God. The orientation changes altogether. Go back to Hebrews. I want you to see this passage because it's something that we camped out on for some time. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You may recall when we moved through that passage a few months ago, we spent some time considering the Day of Atonement and Aaron, how Aaron as the high priest of Israel moved on the Day of Atonement. You may remember that there were all kinds of sacrifices that took place that day, all kinds of rams and bulls. He's having to sacrifice for his own sins. He's having to sacrifice for the sins of his family. But then there are two very important sacrifices that he makes. Two goats. The first goat he sacrifices to cleanse the tabernacle. And the second goat, he lays his hands on the head of that goat, places the sins of Israel, confesses the sins of Israel over the head of that goat, And then someone leads that goat out into the wilderness to Azazel. You may remember that Sunday we considered that Jesus has done this for us. He is the perfect high priest, and he ends up being the perfect offering as well. Placed his hands on his own head and confessed your sins and mine over himself, and then he sacrificed himself as the perfect high priest. Something I want to show you today, though, it's a different aspect of the high priestly role. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is an important chapter in the book of John. I don't know how long we spent here, but it was a wonderful journey together through what's called the high priestly prayer. Some snapshots in this prayer that are very important. In verse 6, he prays like an apostle. Listen to what he says. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours there were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Basically saying, I've been a faithful apostle. Now listen to how he prays as high priest. Beginning in verse 9. I am praying for them, not I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
all mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. What I want you to see here is in this movement of this high priest, this perfect high priest, is he is praying for their protection. It's a surgical prayer too. He's praying specifically for his followers. He's praying for their protection and he's praying for oneness. Watch in verse 15 what happens next. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. His prayer, that surgical prayer for his followers, is not that you take them out of difficulty. Don't take them out of the world and all that the difficult things that the world has to offer, but that you protect them as they walk through that, specifically protect them from Satan. Look at verse 17. It says, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Here the high priest is praying for his followers for sanctification or holification, something that's come up in the last couple of weeks. Now look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Here he prays for those who will believe through those who are believing. Think about how surgical and specific his prayer is. I'm praying not for the world, but I'm praying for these jokers right here. Fishermen, tax collectors, least likely to succeed. I'm praying for them specifically for protection. I'm praying for sanctification. And I'm praying for those who will believe through their belief. And then look what he prays next in the next verse, verse 21. For these who will believe that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Here he prays for oneness that represents the nature of the triune God. In verse 24, He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Here he prays for fellowship with Christ and he prays that they would see his glory. These requests from the perfect high priest so wonderfully capture the heart of the high priest for his people before the throne of his Father. He is the perfect representative of man to God, and as that representative, he offers a sacrifice, that's himself, and he prays. Okay, now, together. Let me show you what these look like together. Here's why I really want to focus on them together. There's nothing wrong with breaking them down as apostle and high priest, But in this Hebrews 3 passage, the way the language unfolds, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That word the is called a definite article, and that definite article is not in front of high priests. It's only in front of apostle. And what that means is that apostle and high priest should be viewed together. It's a phrase. And the definite article in that case means the supreme, the one and only apostle and high priest. 
So while we broke them down and we took a few little snapshots, the real key is to see these things together as apostle and high priest and realize that Christ is the supreme apostle and high priest. He's the substance to every apostolic shadow. He's the substance to every prophetic shadow. He's the substance to every priestly shadow in our Bibles. He is the total package. The definite article, apostle and high priest. As apostle, he speaks to us from God and his message is true. As priest, he speaks for us to God. Man, he was and is the perfect bridge between man and God. Spending so much time in John, spending so much time in Hebrews, I couldn't help but think about this passage in John. Listen to this passage. I remember preaching it almost nine years ago. John chapter 1, verse 51. Jesus had just called Nathanael. It was some sort of miracle associated with it. Nathanael is called. And Jesus says to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And something clicked in Nathanael where Jesus saw something in him that nobody else would see. And Nathanael confesses him as son of God and king of Israel. And here's Jesus' answer. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And listen to what he says next. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. He is the perfect ladder. God comes down to us in Jesus, and God leads us up as high priests. Jesus as ladder. So, what does this say to us and about us? This is so such a simple sermon. First of all, it says to us that we as Christians... We as those who bear the character and nature of Christ should represent Christ in our context. And when we do so, we will be the things that he is. The heading for the next few minutes we're going to spend together is, you are to be an apostle. You are to be a priest. As you reflect Christ, you are to reflect the total package. You are to be apostle. Listen to this passage in John chapter 17. Just a couple more examples of Jesus saying, I'm sent. 17 verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In verse 8, just to climb you back into the context, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And listen to what he says in verse 18. Here's where it comes together. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's where it comes together. A couple chapters later, Chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again after he's crucified and risen, he reveals his risen body, person, 
to the disciples. And he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. That's the point of the first part of this sermon, the fact that we are to then go and do what Christ has done for us as apostles. We are to have an apostolic character to our walk because we too have been sent. Sent into Oak Creek Estates, for those of us that live in that neighborhood. Sent into L3. Sent into city council, chamber of commerce. Sent into your business place. Sent into your family. Sent into October. Sent into 2013. The point for the Hebrews church would have been unlock that door, don't play it safe, get out of that door because as the Father sent me, so send I you, Hebrews church. And that's the message for us too. It better not be terminal on us because we too have been sent. We too are to take Christ where he isn't being enjoyed. Maybe it's into a relationship that's godless. Maybe it's into the workplace. Maybe it's into your den, shepherds. You want to be Christ to your family? I don't mean in the strict sense, but Christ-like in your family? You've got to take him into your den. You've got to take him to your dining room, to your kitchen table. Take him into your neighborhood. Take him into a friendship. Take him into a conflict. You don't have to look hard to find conflict. As an apostle, take Christ into that context. Go enjoy him there. Geographically, go enjoy him where he's not enjoyed. Circumstantially, I don't even know if that's a word, situationally, go enjoy him there where he's not enjoyed. We are to represent God to Greenville, to Caddo, to Rockwall, to Merritt, to Lone Oak, to Quinlan. We are to represent God at L3, at the courthouse, at the construction site. We are to represent God in the den, at the dinner table, because you are sent. Secondly, as we are to represent God in our context, we are to represent our context to God. We are to be priests in our context representing Greenville to God. Turn to Exodus chapter 28. This is where we're going to, I'm going to leave you with this image this morning. I'm going to share a passage while you're turning there. These words that I'm about to read to you come from the guy least likely to ever be a priest, a guy named Peter. If you've enjoyed Peter's story at times where we've really camped out on him, know that he's least likely to ever be a priest. And listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You, he's writing to believers all over the Roman Empire, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that are in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see both apostolic character in that statement 
and obviously priestly character. You are a royal priesthood. And this same man says this about prayer later on in in this book. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The reason he said that is because he's thinking like a priest, because that's what priests do. If you're thinking, okay, I see the apostolic thing. I see that I'm supposed to move in an apostolic way and take Christ where he isn't. But priests make sacrifices, right? Apart from Romans chapter 12, placing your own life as a living sacrifice, there's no other other sacrifice to be made. So we do what else priests do? We pray. Now, this passage in Exodus chapter 28 is a great image to leave you with this morning. Listen to this development here on the garments for the priests. Chapter 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Let's watch what the priests wear. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. What we're going to focus on in the next few minutes is the ephod and the breastpiece. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Listen to the details on the ephod. An ephod is like a tunic minus sleeves. Way to think of it. They shall make an ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen. Skillfully worked, it shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. Look at verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. (laughs) Love that. You're going to know why in a minute. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Every time Aaron was to step into the tabernacle and make offerings, he is bearing Israel on his shoulders as he stands before the Lord. Bearing them in gold filigree. Listen to the details on the breast piece. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work, in verse 15, in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, you shall make it. Verse 17, you shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, 
carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, an amethyst, and the fourth row a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. Jump to verse 28. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Every time Aaron stepped into that tabernacle, he is bearing Israel on his heart as he stands before the Lord. In gold filigree. What I want to charge you with this morning is if you want to be like Christ and you are going to follow Christ, then you are to take on the apostolic character of Christ and you are to take on the priestly character of Christ. And as the high priest bears the names of those in his context on his shoulders and on his breastpiece, you too should bear names. I'm thinking of the shepherds in this room. I'm thinking of imaginary ephods and breast pieces on each of you. And I'm seeing the names of your wives and your children and those you work with and those you walk with engraved in gold filigree. They're supposed to be as you bear them before the living God because that's what Christ has done for us. That's what you do For those of you spiritually single moms or for those single moms, you're doing the same thing with your ephod and your best breast piece, bearing the names of those under your charge and those in your context before the living God because that's what we do as a nation of priests. I have a diagram, picture, ugly picture I drew. Evan would not approve being the artist that she is of a breast piece and an ephod. It's not in gold filigree, but figuratively, it is. Christy, Evan, Luke, Daniel, deacons, fellow elders, small group shepherds, shepherds of families, Members in this body, friends, family, those serving abroad in hard and difficult and dark places, serving in apostolic ministries, they're on my breastpiece as well. It should be in gold filigree because we lift them up. We pray for protection from the evil one. We pray for oneness. We pray for sanctification. We pray for those who will believe through those who are believing. We pray for fellowship with Christ. We pray that they will view his glory. 
Christ was the perfect apostle and high priest, and so should we walk and move and worship with an apostolic character because we too have been sent and with a priestly character, not making new sacrifices because that's done, but praying, lifting up our families, lifting up those across our chest and on our shoulders. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that right now, as a result of the time that we've spent together, that we see two things. First of all, Lord, I pray that we have eyes to our context. And a new understanding and realization that we've been placed in that context for a purpose. And with a Holy Spirit-fueled resolve to take Christ where he isn't into a situation, our relationship, our workplace, our setting, or a neighborhood, or a den. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will work in us apostolic and grow our apostolic character as we reflect Christ. And secondly, especially burdened that everybody in here has this view of an ephod and a breastpiece that we all wear as a holy nation of priests, a royal priesthood. Pray that those that are near to us, those that are in our context, will be engraved in gold filigree. Thankful for this sweet picture this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Come to a time of enjoying the supper this morning. Um, we certainly don't come taking this lightly or taking it for granted. This is a holy meal. For holy brothers and sisters, a set-apart meal for a set-apart people. We come considering, what has Jesus done? We come to remember at this meal. Anytime you're wondering, what is it again that Jesus has done? Ephesians 2 is the go-to place. There's a lot of go-to chapters. But what has Jesus done again? What has he done for us and setting us apart? Ephesians 2 is so sweet. Consider what he's done, Ephesians 2, starting in 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Division, hostility, factions, dead, crushes in his work and drawing us near. This supper is a meal for those that are repentant, walking in a manner worthy of their calling by trusting in the one who he himself is worthy and able to bring us near by his blood. If you're not trusting in Jesus and his work completely this morning, if you're not trusting in redemption through his death, the, the death that we proclaim until he comes again, if you're not completely trusting in that, this meal is not for you. If you find yourself this morning a stranger to the covenants of promise, you just don't understand that and you don't confess with your mouth that he is complete and trust him completely, this meal is not for you. But we don't leave it there. We beg you to consider what he's done. Consider his work. Consider Jesus. Consider him as your only hope to be brought near to God. Secondly, if you find yourself this morning hostile, divided, or unrepentant in the direction of God's household, whether that's here at Cross Point or if you're visiting from another fellowship, if you find yourself in hostility, find yourself in unrepentance, in division, in direction of those people, we ask you to refrain from taking this supper. Taking this supper while walking in that hostility, it doesn't reconcile with the sending and your priesthood that Ben just mentioned. It doesn't reconcile to take that when you're, it doesn't reconcile with your sending as an apostle and priest. This is why I say that this morning. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you I don't pat you on the back for these things because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He goes on in 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So if you find yourself in division and outside of accountability and truth this morning, we beg you to consider Jesus. Consider his blood and his call. Walk in repentance with those with whom you're divided. And do not eat and drink judgment. This supper is a meal of resolution. There's so much resolve. All the contentious matters that sin brings to your life are resolved at the cross. Done. There's resolution in this meal. It's a meal of rest and relief and celebration. And so we will take this meal in a worthy manner, a holy people. Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace and has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility.
Take and eat. Take and drink. Y'all pray with me. Father, as we continue in worship and our giving, we do so in a manner that's grateful, blown away by your provision, blown away by the oneness that we walk in and experience here in this body of believers and this set-apart brothers and sisters. And we give generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully not to earn anything, but we give resting in Christ, celebrating what you've done and who you are and what you've done in us. And we trust you in our giving and we worship you in our giving. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The apostle and high priest thing, in our case, apostle and priest thing, can be pretty intimidating and daunting. You know, you hear something like that, you're like, man, I... I couldn't do that. I'm not a very good representative of Jesus. And I just want to let you know, nobody really is. I mean, if you think you are, mm, it's going to be a problem. If you think you aren't, then you're perfect. Stay there and step out in it. And then when you see something cool happen, who gets the glory in that? So I encourage you, if you're hearing that, you know, this apostle, man, I, okay, I've got a, some situations that I could go be Christ in, but mm, I wouldn't be a very good representative. Well, you're no representative if you don't step out in it, bearing truth, bearing worship. You don't have to have the answers to everything. Just go enjoy Christ. Oftentimes, you're going to find that in recent sermons, you'll find the equipment for issues that come up. If you realize his timing can be that um, orchestrated, that he could take a few hundred people and he could navigate your circumstances to where what you are equipped with in the previous Sundays are equipping you for a scenario that you find yourself in on Monday. He does it all the time. We just have to have a view of it and realize you were just equipped for something just now. If, if, you, if it's, I just went to church, you've missed it. You were just equipped for something. And you've been equipped in previous weeks to then go be an apostolic representative of the apostle and high priest in that context. And if you think I won't do a good job, that's, you, God does it. So be okay with frail and feeble and step out in it and do your best in trusting the whole situation to him. When it comes to the high priest thing, the reason I got so emotional this morning is because I'm thinking about who, who I'm wearing across my chest and that picture of gold filigree is like time and commitment and care and, and craftsmanship and skill. And I'm thinking, man, mine's sloppy. Personally, I'm convicted. Mine's sloppy. I'm kind of a reactive prayer. Something comes up, man, let's go pray about it. But praying through sort of the, some of the things that he prayed through in the high priestly prayer for those who we carry around, that's gold filigree. And that's a great representative of who I want to be as a man, as an elder, as a brother, as a friend, as a daddy, as a husband, more than any of those things, as a husband. So that's conviction. So if you think, man, I don't have it going on there, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> but man, this is good medicine, though. This is equipping us to go then go do. 
I want to encourage you in that this morning. Don't, don't be um, overwhelmed because he dispenses grace on demand. Like manna, it didn't last, you know, you didn't collect months worth. You got out there and just got a day's worth. So say, okay, Lord, give me enough for tomorrow. And then go get some manna, fresh grace in the morning, and step off in it. And then there'll be more on Tuesday. Promise. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you make up the vast difference between what we know we ought to be and what we are. And thankful that Christ has made up that difference, that we stand before you wearing clothed in his righteousness. Thankful that on our, um, on our best day and our worst day that that's true, and we enjoy that. Lord, I pray that that reality doesn't leave us lazy, but instead frees us to step out and even fail. Pray that it frees us to step out and represent Christ in places where he's not being enjoyed. I pray that it leads us to step out and lift up those that are closest to us, those that are in our context and who are arrayed in four rows across our chests, engraved on our shoulders. Thankful for the sweet imagery that you've given us in that. We give you this day and this week. Pray that you will give us opportunity to walk in what we've been equipped for today and that we will connect those dots. The Holy Spirit will open our eyes to the ever-ready equipment. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.